The Adler Planetarium needs your support. Individual donations help us connect people to the universe and each other, especially while the museum is closed to help slow the spread of COVID-19 in our community. Wherever you are, when you look up, we're looking up with you. If you're able, please visit give.adlerplanetarium.org slash helptheadler and give what you can. The Adler Planetarium presents The Aquarius Project, Chapter 6. No matter what it is, it's something. I live downtown, so it's, like, hard to, like, go out at all and, like, do anything because you have to, like, you know, talk to five people just to get out of the building. That's Jenica Greer. And, like, touch all these doorknobs. She's a PhD candidate at the University of Chicago and a resident grad student at the Field Museum, right down the street from the Adler. I talked to Jenica via Skype in April 2020. The whole city of Chicago and state of Illinois and most of the country and a big chunk of the world were under stay-at-home orders because of COVID-19. The Field Museum is doing this thing where they want us to, like, make videos about what we've been doing. And I've been playing a lot of Minecraft, so I started putting together videos about, like, the rocks in Minecraft. So I've, like, justified playing Minecraft as working, so that's where I'm at. For several episodes now, we've been talking about how everything is connected and we're all part of one big story. And that story is not simple or easy. Sometimes there's a dangerous virus outside or inside. Sometimes violence drives people into the streets to march for justice. Maybe you don't know what next week or next year is going to look like. Everything is hard or weird or hard and weird. But the complicated, difficult, messy parts are what make our story unique. They ground us in a specific time and place. When Jenica's not playing Minecraft, she studies pre-solar grains, little bits of rock and metal from space that are older than our sun. She's been working with the Aquarius Project since the early days. She helped Chris Bresky and the Adler teens create the fake meteorites they use to test their magnetic sled. She's also played an important, if sometimes misunderstood, role on the team. Jenica kills dreams. Yes. I am the dream killer. But, like, not on purpose. The lab where Jenica works at the Field Museum has this program that lets people send in objects they think are from space. The most common thing that we see uh, is some sort of man-made material. So slag or coal clinkers, industrial garbage. Because... Those are the kinds of meteorites that are on display in every museum, every planetarium, the big iron chunks. It turns out a lot of people think they've found meteorites, but most of them haven't. I have been at the museum for three and a half years, and I have seen hundreds of packages and only three meteorites. Like a less than 1% success rate. 
You can't blame people for getting excited about this and wanting to tell someone exactly how they remember it. This elaborate story about how it came in from this angle in the sky at this particular time and it burrowed like 10 feet into the ground and they were able to recover it. They find a piece of something they don't recognize and think, wow, this thing might be a rock from space. And it goes on for a page and you look up the date and time and it will correspond to a fall event, but you're looking at this rock and it's some cement. But maybe it's not from space. Maybe it's not even a rock. Some of the stuff that we get sent is just really weird. A fragment of a kitchen counter. I mean, we've even gotten like a slightly broken glass vial. Like, I don't know what people are thinking when they send us some of the stuff. By the time Jenica heard about the meteor that crashed into Lake Michigan in 2017, I assume it must have been Chris, started pulling people together. She had a lot of experience bursting bubbles. It was in some back room of the shed. And just, you know, that initial meeting, we were all kind of sitting around and discussing, like, can we do this? And if we can, how would we go about it? And that's when the legend of Dream Killer began. Jenica brought a healthy dose of skepticism to the project from that very first meeting. But it wasn't because she didn't want to find a meteorite. It was because she did want to. And when you're a scientist, the more you want something to be true, the harder you have to work to find evidence that you might be wrong. Because if you don't, some other scientist will. And your credibility and professional reputation could take a huge hit. So that's what Jenica did, as the rock and sediment samples that Chris and the Adler teens brought back from the bottom of Lake Michigan started making their way into her lab. Every choice she made to send a sample through for analysis, or toss it into the no pile, was an answer to the central question of this entire project. Was any of this stuff from space or not? So there was a lot of slag, a lot, a lot of slag, and just these millions of iron beads. So everybody would sort through those and pick out the stuff that was basically not an iron bead. And I would have to sift through everything else and say, okay, this is not a meteorite. This is not a meteorite. It was hard, delicate work. A lot of the pieces were smaller than the head of a pin. Jenica wanted to be absolutely certain that she didn't miss anything, but she also didn't want to get anyone's hopes up unnecessarily. And like, come on, somebody needs to keep Chris in check. Because if that boy had any more enthusiasm, could you imagine? If Jenica found something that didn't look like iron or slag, which is basically gritty industrial waste, she gets subjected to bigger tests, even more discerning than her own eye. Okay, so the first thing we do, okay, we take pictures from all sides to get a good... Uh, idea of the exterior. And then we use a technique which is like a quick and dirty analysis. That's Philip Heck. Yeah, I'm the Pritzker Associate Curator for Meteorites and Polar Studies. And I'm a cosmochemist. I study cosmic dust, meteorites, and fossil meteorites. Philip runs the lab that Jenica works in. And you heard that right. He's a cosmochemist. Yeah, a cosmochemist analyzes the chemical composition of uh, extraterrestrial matter. He's talking about how you know if a rock is from space. We have a handheld spectrometer, essentially. Um, we bombard the 
meteorite, the rock, the suspected meteorite with x-rays and look at, okay, what x-rays come back. And they tell us what elements are present in the meteorite. If you pointed one of those spectrometers at a space rock, you'd find the same chemical elements you know and love from the periodic table of the elements. But Philip says you'd also see much higher concentrations of certain elements, like nickel, than you would ever find on Earth. If we see that, we say, okay, it's probably a meteorite. Probably. Hopefully. So you have to look even closer. Then we study it with other techniques that allow us to determine its chemical composition. And once this is done, we can actually see if it's a meteorite or not. The machines Philip and Jenica use are incredibly sensitive. They can spot a tiny meteorite just as accurately as a big one. And typically after that, we do mass spectrometry, look at the cosmic isotopic fingerprints of oxygen to get the nail down the classification. After the boat trips to the meteor crash site, there was a lot of material to sort through. Chris Bresky, Phil Willink, who we met last episode, the Adler teens, and maybe even some of you if you happen to run into them at one of the community events at Harold Washington Library, spent many months carefully combing through pounds and pounds of rock and dirt and slag and sludge. Most of that stuff never made it to Philip's lab. After a while, Chris and Phil Willink got pretty good at killing their own dreams, picking out the slag and throwing it away instead of sending it to Jenica. They weren't finding what they were looking for. But they did see a lot of really neat things under the microscope. There was this book in the project space called In Search of Stardust. It's by a Norwegian guy named John Larson. It's a book about micrometeorites. Not little pieces of a big meteorite, itty-bitty space rocks that were already very small before they ever made it to Earth. Most of the micrometeorites are around like 0.2 to 0.4 millimeters. So they're yeah, tiny, tiny little guys. The book is full of colorful photographs of super magnified micrometeorites. They look like beautiful alien space marbles, or spherules, if you're looking for a more scientific word. The book explains that just like big meteorites, some of these sand grain-sized spherules from space look very similar to the ones from Earth. Sometimes, you know, you'll get that feeling, you're like, ooh, is that one? And then it isn't, and then you're like, oh, darn it. And it shows you how to spot the differences. But sorry, did I forget to introduce Scott? Um, yes, uh, my name is Scott Peterson, and I am a micrometeorite hunter. Scott, who's also a stay-at-home dad, lives in Minneapolis. He heard about the Aquarius Project somewhere on the internet. It just clicked with me because, I mean, obviously, I look for micrometeorites. And then he did the most Aquarius Project thing possible and just tracked down Chris and volunteered to help. Yeah, I emailed you guys right away, and I figured might as well give it a shot, see if you could send me some material. By material, he means the sludge from the bottom of the buckets. All that sand and dirt the team preserved from the sled with the help of a strategically placed, low-tech, luxuriously soft bedsheet. Scott has been hunting micrometeorites for years. Like so many people who have worked on the Aquarius Project, he has no formal scientific training. But he spent years teaching himself how to find micrometeorites on rooftops. Well, I, I just love it. Like, it's when I find them, it's kind of like, uh, I don't know, it's just like winning the lottery every time. It's just this rush that you, you get to see these little tiny things that, you know, are as old as the solar system and possibly even older that 
I've just been floating around the universe and then got here, you know, not too long ago. And then I got to find them. It's, I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing. You've probably already guessed what happened next. Chris packed up some sludge and sent it to Minneapolis, where Scott got to work sorting through it. In the meantime, Scott put us in touch with a contact of his in Norway. My name is John Larson, and I'm a cosmic treasure hunter. Yeah, the guy who literally wrote the actual book on micrometeorites. John is also a jazz musician. That's his day job. He told me he's been using his music career to support his science habit for more than a decade. 10, 11 years ago now, uh, I was suddenly having breakfast uh, outdoors on my porch. And there was a white table, and at one point, suddenly a very tiny black dot appeared on the table in front of me, right in front of my nose. And I picked it up and touched it with my fingertips, and I thought, wow, this is a small mineral grain. It's not a plant seed or a part of an insect. It's actually a very small rock. Uh, it wasn't there a couple of seconds ago. And here it is. And where did it come from? John didn't know if that rock had come from the sky or not, but just the possibility that it might have totally changed his life. He stuck the rock in a matchbox and started learning about micrometeorites. By the time he had access to the kind of high-powered microscope he would need to get a good look at the rock, he couldn't find the matchbox. But then it was too late. Then I was already on the trail searching for stardust. If you wanted to start looking for micrometeorites tomorrow, you could read John's books and find out how to do it. But when John started looking for them, all he had was the general consensus of experts that trying to find micrometeorites anywhere but in isolated areas like Antarctica would be very difficult, if not impossible, so why bother? John didn't have a guidebook, so he had to improvise. I use very simple equipment. It's, you get it for, uh, for $20. I use a magnet, a T-sieve, and some plastic bags. That's the basic uh, equipment. It feels kind of weird to say this, but John's story, the story of a self-taught micrometeorite hunting Norwegian jazz musician, sounds awfully familiar. We keep hearing it. Someone asks a question, receives a deeply unsatisfying answer, decides to take matters into their own hands, and spends six years looking at coal dust under a microscope. In addition to to the naturally occurring particles from Earth, from volcanoes and lightning, there are industrial particles that look more or less like micrometeorites. It's like learning a language. You have to learn what's, <laughs> what are the genuine micrometeorites and manage to distinguish them from the, from the man-made particles. When John heard about the Aquarius project, he wanted in. So Chris scooped a clump of sludge into a plastic container and shipped it across the Atlantic Ocean. Meanwhile, the team at the Adler kept sorting through the pebble-sized rocks, one by one, whenever they could carve out the time. The scanning electron microscope at the Field Museum was out of order, which put a crimp in any plans to send more material to Jenica and Philip. Oh, and then the pandemic happened. But information had started to flow back to us from our friends Scott and John. So even though the work wasn't entirely done, we set up a Zoom call and asked Chris to give us an update. Yes, hello. No video, Chris. <laughs> We're trying to preserve bandwidth. Yeah, but all of you don't have 
Uh, well, Aaron has a cool picture. You two don't. You remember Shane Larson, the astronomer and physics professor whose email started this whole project? He was on the call, too. Yeah, my street cred definitely goes down based on my Zoom profile picture. <laughs> keep, it's okay. Keep me that. Our, our ability to be remote with each other escalates as the pandemic progresses. At first, there uh, was this propensity of just, like, chucking out the the sludge that was at the very bottom, like the very fine particles. Um, uh, there were folks that were like, oh, well, we don't really, there's probably nothing in there. But uh, Shane, like when we were on the boat together, you know, everything goes in the bucket. I think it's something that you said. Yeah. <laughs> from that, I think that from that students uh, started, uh, students started using the, uh, you know, the 500 count spread uh, bed sheet to, uh, to catch basically everything, which got, uh -huh. which got this, um, the smaller, smaller particles. And so nothing, nothing went over the edge and everything went into the bucket. So this series of citizens, uh, community scientists uh, asked for some of our sediment and we shipped it out to Norway. And um, both the community scientists with a strong background in um, this small micrometeorites and uh, John, maybe John Larsen uh, there in Norway said they found some. Wow, yeah. that's cool. So these students who went out to create an underwater space rock uh, retriever retrieve space rocks underwater from the bottom of Lake Michigan. John Larson had sent us a photograph of something he found in the sludge. Since we were pretty sure it was earmarked for John's latest book, which came out in June, we hadn't shared it outside the Adler. But we wanted Shane to see it, so I emailed it to him while we were talking. Waiting, waiting, waiting. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a big picture. Yeah, you know, it used to be Aubrey would have to, you know, send me a, a, a picture in an envelope. So this is going to be faster no matter what, right? Okay, here it is. Let's open it up. Holy smoly! Whoa! Wow! How big is that? <laughs> that is awesome! Isn't that beautiful? That is stunning. Look at the striations on this. It looks like like little feathers and wings. Yeah. That's amazing. It's breathtaking. That is freaking rad. Okay, okay. This is very exciting. But at least five different scientists that I know personally will be pretty annoyed if I don't put it in context for you. Micrometeorites are different from regular, bigger meteorites. Sometimes very tiny pieces do come off of bigger meteorites as they're breaking up in the sky. And sometimes those pieces can even form sand grain-sized spherules. They're called ablation spherules. But those are not micrometeorites. They're just small bits of a regular meteorite. Micrometeorites are tiny before they hit Earth's atmosphere. So... What did our friends find? Let's start with that frickin' rad image we got from John. It doesn't look like anything I've ever seen on this planet. And like I said, he did write the actual book on micrometeorites, so, you know, his opinion counts for a lot. But there are people who wouldn't be 100% comfortable saying it's definitely from space unless it was subjected to a barrage of chemical and structural analyses. Having said that, 
The reason John is so sure it is from space is because of how it looks. Features like those little feathers and wings Shane was talking about are etched into micrometeorites when they fall through Earth's atmosphere. And there's no natural process on Earth that does that to tiny rocks. If you just glanced at it out of the corner of your eye, you would think that it's a black and white picture, but it's not. It's, uh, it's a full color image, but most of the colors you see are black and gray. Um, there are kind of iridescent surface features across it. If it was large and you held it in your hands and you were turning it in the sunlight, it would glisten and sparkle like kind of iridescent minerals or snow wood. It kind of looks like a moon of Mars, actually. It's kind of irregular shaped like a potato. Um, and then there are these kind of really interesting structures in the parts that look like gray that look like overlaid feathers on a wing. Now, on to Scott from Minneapolis. Scott pulled out maybe a dozen spherules that he is very confident are micrometeorites and sent them back to Chris so he could take them to Phil and Jenica to analyze with the fanciest machines in their lab. They had big plans to do that, but they weren't able to before the pandemic hit. We did get to look at them under a microscope, though, and they do look really different from any of the discarded samples that killed everyone's dreams. Oh, and there is one other person who spotted a very exciting teeny tiny rock in the lake sludge. Our favorite cosmic dust expert at NASA, Mark Fries. He's the guy who told us where to look for our meteorite back in episode two. Mark found something he thinks might be an ablation spherule, a tiny piece of a bigger meteor. You can get all the details and see all these images on a very special Aquarius Project episode of Adler Astronomy Live on our YouTube channel. We'll link it in the show notes. But we still have questions. This yeah. is the way science works, right? You never answer a question, put the project away, and then never go back to it again. Every answer begets new questions. The biggest one is, if it turns out any of these little rocks is an ablation spherule, could it be a fragment of our meteor? Exactly. Because no matter what it is, it's something. We're going to write a paper about what we found, right? Here's this meteorite. It's from the dredge. Maybe it's ours. Maybe it's not. And then in the discussion section, in the last bit of the scientific paper, you're going to say future work. What's the future work to be done? And yeah. we're going to say we need to know if this is all over the lake or not. If we could prove we had some ablation spherules, it would be pretty easy to prove that they didn't come from our meteorite. We just have to drop the sled back into Lake Michigan at a bunch of random locations, collect some new samples, and scour them for chemically identical spherules. If the same little bits are all over the whole lake bottom, they're not from our meteor. If we couldn't find them anywhere except at the crash site, well, that would be encouraging. But there would still be so much work to do before anyone would dare suggest that the team had found a microscopic bit of the exact meteorite they were looking for. And so even if we can't do the, the continuing work, we're right. going to lay out what we think the continuing work is. Yeah. So the next scientist or the next teen or the next team that right. picks up our paper goes out and does it. That's our obligation to the scientific work that we've started, is yeah. to just lay out the state of knowledge as we know it and hope someone else picks it up and, and carries the torch. That hope. 
that hope though i i do i hope for it so badly i want to it's like you're running in this relay and you have this baton that you've like been running yeah, right. for a long time and you care about it so much that you i'm looking for the hand reaching back right now to pass it off to <laughs> and i there's just hope people will you, you you just have to believe that people will we don't know who will grab the torch next but it's like shane said science is never over someone Possibly many someones will revisit the questions in the Aquarius Project and use them to uncover new questions about our universe and our planet. In September, we asked Chris and a couple of Adler Teen alumni what they would take away from their time on the project and what they might say to whoever comes next. Um, I think one thing they should have is patience. That's Rome Jones. Rome had a different name the last time we talked to them, but you'll remember them as the lifelong tinkerer who drew little dragons all over their notes and learned 3D design to make an important piece of the sled. It took a lot of work for us to get, like, like of course I want them to hit the ground running, like, take it as far as you can go. But, like, you have to have patience with things like this. Like, things take time and you have to be patient if you want to do a good job. I feel like I need to tell you that right before Rome said that, they had shown us an amazing dragon puppet they made over the summer. It had a long tail that draped all the way around Rome's shoulders and a big toothy smile, and Rome could make it blink by pulling on a little ring inside its head. Honestly, I'm still learning patience. I'm not, like, I'm a pretty patient person, but with my own work, I'm still not as patient as I would like to be. Because, like, sometimes when I, I make stuff, like, my little dude over there, her name's Peaches, I make, I make stuff like that all the time, but sometimes I don't have parts I need and I don't. I can't figure out what I need, so I have to, like, make it myself with whatever my little hands can do. But if I could, like, 3D print it out, it would make stuff It would make stuff go so much faster. Rome was one of the first people to work on the Aquarius Project, and one of the youngest back in 2017. So I was, like, 15, 16 at the time. I'm 18 now. I still feel like a child, a, a baby, perhaps. It's like, oh, God, I was so little. <laughs> like, I'm going to look back. I'm like old. I'm going to be like, wow, they hired a child to do this job and it somehow worked. I feel like as people get older, they're like, this is what I'm good at. So this is what I'm going to stick to. That's Jared Scales. You'll also remember him from episode three. But like at that age for that project, we had no idea what we had to do or what we were good at. So we were like, let's just try whatever we can and see if it works. Younger ages are like, I don't care if I get this wrong. I'm just going to do it. And we like weren't afraid to get it wrong. Yeah. We were like, let's just get it wrong. And hopefully we'll get it right one day. Something about that, Jared, is really powerful. The, the ability to keep being curious, because that's what kind of can overcome fear, right? Fear is like this 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 feeling of the unknown, but curiosity is kind of the antidote. Yeah, it's like, I'm gonna figure this out even if I do fail. Or, or if I'm afraid of it, I'm just gonna see what happens. Yeah, you're like you literally ask everyone around you what is needed, how is this done. You didn't ask anyone how do you look for space rocks at the bottom of Lake Michigan. You asked, you asked what do we need to accomplish in this moment right now to move forward. I think I'd say that to the future me or the, the whoever is like picking this up is you don't have to be a professional. You're bringing your own self to this, and that's going to make the team stronger. You might not think you have all the skills you need to find a meteorite underwater or solve climate change or fix something at your school or work or in your family or your community. And maybe you don't, but you don't need all the skills. 
You need other people who have the ones you're missing. And they need you too. If you're willing to show up, be yourself, take a risk, and try your best, the work you do will matter. Whether you're hunting for space rocks in a lake, raising your voice in protest, or trying to save the planet. I think that's definitely something that like this whole experience taught me. It doesn't matter if you're afraid of it or if you think you can't do it. You might be able to do it. Even if you do fail, it's okay. You tried it. Something's going to come out of it. You may not see it, but something. The Aquarius Project is a production of the Adler Planetarium with music by Audio Network. It was written by me, Aubrey Henready, and produced by Aaron Cahoe. Our logo was designed by Arilla Fetro. Special thanks to Jenica Greer, Philip Heck, Scott Peterson, John Larson, Shane Larson, no relation, Rome Jones, Jared Skills, and Chris Bresky. Big prayer hands emojis to Andrew Marikas for listening to this episode early and giving us great notes. And finally, massive thanks to Aaron Wilson and Rue Mizuno, who greenlit this podcast when all we had was a super enthusiastic pitch and like a six-sentence outline. If you're feeling socially distant, you can stay connected with the Adler Planetarium, science, astronomy, our universe, and each other exactly where you are. Visit adlerplanetarium.org connect to find our latest and greatest digital programs, activities, and other resources. Speaking of the pandemic, if you've ever considered supporting the Adler Planetarium or if it never even occurred to you until two seconds ago when you heard me say it, now is the time. Go to give.adlerplanetarium.org slash help the Adler to make a tax deductible donation. And also, please share that link with all your billionaire friends. We'll make it easy. It's in the show notes. Follow the Adler Planetarium on Twitter and Instagram at Adler Planet and on Facebook at Adler Planetarium. Visit our website at adlerplanetarium.org. have to drop off the sled no drop off the sled like for school like bye sled have a good day don't get in any fights the other sleds don't forget your lunch okay i'm done with that joke as funny as it was